Morning. So right off the bat, there's a few, before we jump into things, uh, there's a few uh, housekeeping items I, I want to talk to you about. I want to ask uh, for your help in three ways. First, we want to ask for your input. We're considering trying something this summer, and your thoughts on this matter uh, matter to us. Church attendance during the summer, as you know, uh, is rather erratic and mostly quite a bit lower than normal Sundays due to vacations and summer travel, which is fine and understandable. But that dynamic can uh, take away from our sense of community and welcome. Likewise, we know that our Unity Sundays have been really good for building a sense of community as two services come together to worship as one on those Sundays. So what we are considering trying for eight weeks this summer is going to one worship service. It would only be for the months of June and July. And to be clear, this is not a trial to see if we should move to one service year-round. This is a trial to see if we should consider one service on the, in the summers. <laughs> one other thing to note is that we know that those who come to a particular service probably like their service time, and it wouldn't be fair to simply eliminate one service and say, everybody go to this one. So in an effort to be more, more fair for both services, we would only have one worship service at 9.45 a.m. <clears throat> see, the early service laughed at that. That's very interesting. This splits the difference exactly between the two start times so that both services give a little to make this happen. We would like your input in two ways. First, we want conversation. So feel free to contact me, anyone else on staff, or on our church council with your questions, your concerns, your opinions. They will record your thoughts and, uh, for consideration. We want that conversation. And I stress again, no decision has been made. We are gathering input. Our goal is that a decision on this would be made shortly, certainly before Easter. We're going to be discussing this at our, uh, this month's council meeting this coming Tuesday. Second, on the back of your communication card is a simple statement with a thumbs up and a thumbs down. If you support the idea of going to one service at 9.45 a.m. for the months of June and July 2020, please circle the thumbs up. If you do not support this one service option, circle thumbs down. Please do fill out your name on the card, as that helps us if we want to reach out and have more conversation with you about this thing. And again, please reach out to us for clarification, for questions, and for conversation. And then there are two other areas that we want your help in. Both of them involve prayer. As, as we are now moving into a new phase of our Vitality Pathway and Strategic Ministry Planning, since initiating and developing the ECC Touchstones of Welcome, Transformation, and Presence, the ministry planning team is now passing the torch back to the council and pastors to make some decisions on practical next steps. In addition to that, while we do have a healthy reserve of cash in the bank, our giving and uh, uh, our budget both need prayer and attention in the coming year. So next week, uh, starting next Sunday evening, March 15th to the 18th, the pastors will be going away for a prayer retreat to pray about and to plan around these two challenges I've just mentioned and more. And then on Saturday, April the 4th, the council, council will gather together for a day-long prayer retreat around these things as well. So the other two areas we're asking for help then are in praying for these two retreats. You can pray for wisdom, you can pray for clarity, you can pray for unity of hearts and minds in these things in particular. The next steps concerning strategic planning and the budget in the coming year. And whatever we discern from, through this process will be shared at, at the very least by the May congregational meeting. So thanks for giving attention to those and for hearing me out. So far and away, the most important thing you and I could do, you and I could be about in life as followers of Jesus, is leading people into a growing and vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. Far and away, the most important thing we can do. 
Of course, that assumes that we too are in a growing, vibrant relationship with Jesus Christ. In a very real sense, the best thing we can do to help others come to know and follow Jesus is to make sure that we are walking closely with God, seeking to hear His Spirit, that we are fully engaged in the transformational work that God is doing in us and through us. For then we have something to offer others. And so when we talk about our ECC touchstones of welcome, transformation, and presence, we do so as a means of living our lives around the good news that we're going to celebrate this morning. It is good news that comes from probably the most well-known verse in the whole Bible. It has been advertised at sports events for decades, John 3.16. I Google to find this image or any image. I chose baseball because I'm a baseball guy. And uh, there's that sign. When I did this, what I found was also a whole lot of blogs asking, what are all these John 3.16 signs I see at sports events, which I think it's interesting how much our culture has changed in all of that. So this is the good news that we're going to celebrate. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Let's say that together. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In this morning's passage, Jesus is going to actually give us a very powerful picture of the sending of God's one and only Son. By way of a a bit of a a review, last week we were in Mark chapter 11, the Palm Sunday passage. Jesus rode into Jerusalem along with a large crowd of faithful Jewish people, pilgrims on their way to celebrate the festival of Passover. The next day, Jesus cursed the fig tree and then he went into the temple courts and he turned over the tables of the money changers and accused them of uh, selling, they're selling of sacrifices, of making God's house of prayer for all nations into a den of robbers. Interesting thing, the way Mark tells the story, what, what is going on here, there's no mention that the money changers were cheating anybody. Uh, the den of robbers actually probably refers to the idea that God has established this, uh, the court of the Gentiles as a house of prayer for all nations, and they're doing the buying and selling and changing of money in the court of the Gentiles, thus robbing the Gentiles of a place to worship the one true God. We find out the next day that the cursed fig tree has withered, and these things were prophetic acts that that were intended to speak a word of judgment against Israel and her leadership. And then, in Mark 11, 18, we read, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this, what Jesus had done in the temple, and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Jesus' actions in the temple kick the plot to have him killed into high gear. We've actually known about this plot since the first few verses of chapter 3. So just before our reading this morning, the religious leaders want to know specifically what gives Jesus the authority to wreak this kind of havoc in the temple courts. And though these leaders, as often is the case with Jesus in the New Testament, will not get the answer out of him they wanted to get out of him, the truth is the parable that is a part of this morning's passage, or is the bulk of it, is in fact an answer to their question. And it ticks them off royally. Before we get to the parable, however, there's one more piece of context that will help us to better understand what's going on here. In the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, chapter 5, the prophet writes this. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard that I have done for it? When I looked for grapes, why did it yield only bad? 
Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its edge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Isaiah 5 tells us how to interpret Jesus' parable in Mark chapter 12. It gives us important keys. The vineyard is a very common scriptural image for the people of Israel, and Isaiah 5 is a picture of God's judgment upon his people because they have failed to produce a good crop of the grapes of righteousness and justice, and in fact, the only fruit they have produced, he says, was bloodshed and cries of distress. Now, back in Mark chapter 12, the religious leaders want to know where Jesus gets his authority. And so Jesus draws on this image of Israel as a vineyard and God's judgment on the vineyard, and he tells them a new parable. Then Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the winepress, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some some of them beat, others they killed. We hear, if we're listening already, in this parable, several phrases and images that are directly drawn from Isaiah chapter 5. The vineyard, of course, is the main one, but there is also a very specific mention of a wall, of a wine press, and a watchtower. In early Jewish reflection and meditation on Isaiah chapter 5, the wine press and the watchtower stood for the temple and its altar. The wine press and the watchtower stood for the temple and its altar. So these religious leaders hearing this parable would have known exactly what Jesus was talking about. This is one of those parables Jesus doesn't have to explain. Everybody knows what he means and they don't like it. The way the vineyard owner handles things is in line with the way it happened in real life in that day. Landowners would come in, they would plant the vines, they would put up a wall, they would get the wine press ready, they would build the watchtower, and then they would lease the vineyard to the workers, tenants who would pay rent with the coming harvest. When the harvest was due, a portion of that would go back to the landowner as rent. And while it may seem strange to us that things get out of hand the way they get out of hand here, the way the tenants act in the parable is not uncommon in the ancient world. We know from some ancient legal documents, for example, that if tenants thought that their landlord was weak and was unable to resist, if they were the kind of people who might do so, they could take a a shot at, at taking control of things and taking over the place for themselves like squatters. So the tenants, then, are the religious leaders and the servants are those who are sent to collect rent, are the, are the prophets, some of whom they have treated violently, even killed. And then amid all this escalating violence, the vineyard owner is tremendously patient. He is tremendously patient. He just keeps sending servants, even when he could have justified coming in judgment very early on. In the same way, God could have passed judgment upon Israel or any of us a long time ago, but he hasn't. Instead, he has persistently and patiently reached out to us, eventually sending his one and only son. Jesus continues. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him, last of all, saying, they will respect my son. 
But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. The tenants reasoned that if they killed the owner's son, the inheritance, the vineyard, would be theirs. But that doesn't make much sense to us, right? How's that going to work? Well, it could be that they assumed that since this is the only one left, and maybe he's the only son. And if the only son is coming, who is the heir, maybe they're thinking, ah, the vineyard owner has actually died. This guy's coming to take it. So they reason that if they kill him, there will be no claim on the land, and they can take it for themselves. And so they kill the son. They throw his body outside of the vineyard, not unlike Jesus, the Son of God, dying on a cross outside of Jerusalem. God's incredible patience in calling Abraham and giving us the law and sending us prophets has now come to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. See, God has now done all he can possibly do to make a way for all of humanity, Jews and Gentiles alike, to come into a relationship with him, to experience forgiveness, to become citizens of the kingdom of God now and forever. But, but we have the power as human beings. We have the power to receive and worship the Son. We have the power to reject the Son. But there are consequences for those who reject the Son What then will the owner of that vineyard do, Jesus continues? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this passage of Scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And once again, Jesus announces judgment on Israel and on all who reject him as God's son. What gives Jesus the authority to cleanse the temple and curse the fig tree? This does. He is the son of God of the vineyard owner. Jesus is the Son of God. Period. And then Jesus quotes from the same psalm that the pilgrims quoted from in last week's Palm Sunday passage, Mark 11. There they shouted lines from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Just a few verses before that, we read this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. For the psalmist and for those shouting and singing the song as they made their way into Jerusalem and up to the temple, the stone the builders rejected might well have been a literal stone, a stone that was not perfectly suited for the building of the temple, but was later used as a keystone or cornerstone or something like that, which it depends on the translation and the interpretation. Cornerstone is laid as a part of the foundation. A keystone or capstone fits into the very summit of an arch on a building. And so Jesus takes this imagery and uses it as a metaphor for what God is doing in him. The one who is rejected by the tenants, the religious leaders, will go on to be the key or the foundation for the new thing God is building. And in this new movement, the temple is no longer necessary. Neither are the tenants, the religious leaders. Now keep in mind that as Jesus is speaking these words, Herod's attempt to refurbish and expand the second temple sat unfinished. Just one chapter later, in fact, one of the disciples will marvel at the temple. Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these buildings, replied Jesus? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. The temple will no longer be important in what God is doing as Jesus judgment against the temple and the cleansing of the temple 
and even in the cursing of the fig tree have indicated. Now God is doing a new thing. And that new thing will be like taking a stone that was rejected from the temple and placing it as the keystone, the pinnacle of the church. In this way, the entire community of God's people is being reestablished with new tenets. This isn't Israel being replaced. This is not Israel being replaced. It is Israel being redefined and expanded. It is Israel being redefined and expanded. This new community God is building in Christ is open to all nations, Jew and Gentile alike. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. In the coming of Christ, in the flesh, his incarnation, his life, his teaching, his death, of course, his resurrection on that first Easter Sunday, God has invited all of us to become a part of the new thing that he has done and continues to do in Christ Jesus. And to reject him is to find ourselves without hope. For our God forces himself on no one. He gave his one and only son. He's done all that he can do. And now we must respond to his invitation. So my assumption is that most of us here this morning have already responded to the good news that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We have, we have come to know Christ by faith. We have entered into that relationship. But if you happen to be someone who has not made that decision, who has not responded to that invitation and you want to do that today, please come down and ask for prayer as we sing our closing songs here in a few minutes. Nevertheless, assuming that most of us have already come to a place of faith, it now falls to us to fully engage in those ECC touchstones of welcome and presence. We must seek to be a place of hospitality, grace, and community for all people. And we must seek to be present to those in our lives who do not yet know Christ. For we are sent into the world as agents of change and redemption, and we send others into the world as agents of change and redemption. Along those lines, I want to tell you a story about someone who was sent and very much present to others who did not yet know Christ. So I'm going to invite Carla Weathers to come down and stand in the front here. I'll tell a bit of her story here. Carla currently uh, serves as our financial secretary here at ECC, and she's been doing that for a couple of years, almost three years, and she's doing a fantastic job. About 14 years ago, Carla worked at a local bank and hired a young woman named Kelly Hodgson. And the two of them worked together for a couple of years at the bank when uh, Carla uh, invited Kelly to take part in a new ministry that ECC was launching that fall. This is 2007. MOPS, Mothers of Preschoolers. At that time, Kelly and her husband Mike had a two-year-old son and newborn twin boys. You've grown boys. It's good. So you can see she needed the support. Kelly had not uh, ever been raised in church, and church and faith were not a part of their early marriage, her early marriage to Mike. So I'm going to invite Kelly and Mike Hodgson down front as well. The rest of you are welcome to come too. Come on, Elise. Long story short, Kelly loved mops. She felt supported. She made friends. She grew slowly toward faith. And eventually, Mike and Kelly decided to take the next step, and they visited ECC on a Sunday, and they never left. 
They came to know Christ, and in 2011, Kelly was baptized. That same Sunday, Mike, who had been baptized as an infant in the Church of England, stood down there and reaffirmed or affirmed his baptismal vows before the congregation. And now, Kelly is on staff as our bookkeeper. She does a fantastic job. She does it with joy and with humor, even when she doesn't know it's humorous. She does it. It's delightful. And Mike leads our Wednesday evening men's Bible study down the hall in room 9 at 7.15 p.m. every Wednesday night. You never know what might happen just because you invite someone to church. And where did it start? It started with, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And then, 2,000 years it gets passed down, it gets passed down, it gets passed down. It's people inviting people, people sharing the gospel. Until Carla, at some point, I don't know her story, comes to faith in Christ. Carla, who is a, a devout follower of Jesus Christ and believes in the good news and believes that the news is indeed good, sees in her coworker and friend a need, and so she invites her to a ministry to help meet that need. Carla, was it uh, hard? Did you have to work up the courage, or was it natural for you to invite Kelly to MOPS? Um, it was really natural. Uh, I heard about MOPS, and you know, I'm a lot older than Kelly. I'm old enough to be her mom, and I thought back when I had kids, boy, that would have been a real blessing to have other moms to relate with. And you know, Kelly and I talked a lot about kids and things, and I just thought that was something she would enjoy, so it was very natural. Okay, thank you. Uh, Kelly, did you feel like Carla was beating you over the head with the Bible? <laughs> no, not at no, all. No. Yeah. And, and how did you feel to be invited to MOPS? It was nice to be invited. Um, I trusted her. She said, you know, I think this would be something you would enjoy. And she knew me, and she was right. I yeah. was nervous to go, but once I went, I was glad I did. And yeah. made lots of new mom friends here. You guys want to say anything? <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you. T- could, would you tell a story that you told me in the email that, you, that I didn't ask you about? Would about you? your baptism? Oh, yes. I had always um, wanted a girl. I've always wanted a daughter, and I kept getting blessed with boys. <laughs> First one I had, I was like, oh, I really wanted a girl, and then I got twins. I was like, oh, what are they going to be? What are they going to be? And they knew, they told me one was definitely going to be a boy, and they weren't sure about the other. And I'm like, okay, one boy, one girl, that'd be perfect. And I got boys. And <laughs> so I had lots of boys, and I really, really wanted a girl. And when I got baptized in 2011, I didn't know it at the time, but I was pregnant with Elise. Yep. And I got a girl. Good job. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, let's thank them for sharing their story. You guys can go ahead. And this Wednesday evening at our community gatherings, we're going to watch a provocative video on evangelism that I think will generate a lot of discussion and hopefully a lot of energy around learning uh, uh, different ways we might share our faith with others. James Chung of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship will speak via video to us on the spiritual questions of our times and how to respond to them in a way that, that shares the good news of Jesus. The question is, do we really believe this good news? Do we believe it is good news? And what will we do with what we know about this good news? and the pain of the world in which we live. How will we live? I suggest we begin by recognizing the season we are in and the possibility 
each year of inviting others to join us on Easter Sunday. Any Sunday, really, but Easter is often a good chance to do that. Whom has God already placed in your life that you might invite to worship on Easter Sunday or to the pancake breakfast the week following or to take part in this year's World Vision Global 6K walk run coming May 16th? Whom has God already placed in your lives that it would be natural for you to invite them? And finally, we do have one more way we can respond to this good news that God so loved the world, that God so loved you and me and everybody we meet and everybody we'll never meet, that He gave His one and only Son, Jesus. Each year we participate in the BLESS initiative. BLESS is an acronym that gives us a pathway toward reaching out to others in our lives with the good news of Jesus using five missional practices. The B in BLESS is for begin with prayer. The L is for listen with care. We commit to paying attention to people's dreams and pain. We listen for evidence of God's work in their lives. The E is for eat together. Table fellowship in Scripture is very important. It may just be a cup of coffee together. It may be a meal every once in a while. Whatever it is, we practice sharing meals and sharing life with those we are praying for. And again, watching for God's work in their lives. The S, the first S is for serve in love. We look for opportunities to care for people in practical, need-meeting ways. And the last S is for share your story. Once we have built a relationship, once we have built trust with the one or ones we pray for, we look for ways to share the story of how God is is transforming us and how God is transforming the world in which we live. Well, somebody's worshiping. (laughs) This morning, we begin with prayer. We prayerfully ask God to help us identify people who are in our lives, family, friends, neighbors, co-workers, people who are far from God and need to know God, just as Carla Weathers did over 12 years ago when she invited Kelly to Mops. So you have in your bulletin this insert. You should pull it out. On the front, it goes through these, these five missional practices in BLESS. And inside, there's more information about that and the prayer list and so forth. And the back flap on the right side are two identical bookmark Uh, tear-offs that you have there. And what we want you to do in this uh, little bit of silence this morning as Megan's going to play on the synth is you prayerfully identify the people that God has placed in your life, people who are far from God, people who need to know Christ, and you commit to praying for them in the coming year. And you write those names. Maybe it's just first names. That's fine. That's usually what I do. First names on both of those lists. And the one on the outside, the the first one you tear off, is the one you bring down in just a moment and you're going to place it on that altar as a commitment that you're going to pray. You're going to keep the other bookmark with you and commit to praying for these people throughout the year. We will pray for those, uh, those names and the people represented by those names this morning. We will send them to our Central Conference annual meeting in a few weeks, and we will pray for them at that. And then we will send them on to the denominational annual meeting in June, and we will pray for them there as well. But it begins with prayer, asking God to help you identify the people in your life who are far from God, and committing to pray for them, and watch for the opportunities God opens up for you to listen to them, for you to eat and share table fellowship with them, for you to serve them, and finally for you to share your story with them. Let's go together to the Lord in prayer, and as soon as you have that list ready, just walk on down and lay it here on the altar.